Welcome to the Denver United Sermon of the Week. We hope you're encouraged by this timely message from God's Word. Good morning. Happy Sunday. Hey, any middle schoolers and or preteens that are still in the room, you are dismissed to your classes. If you didn't uh, already head out, United Preteens out the back. Yeah, and United Students Middle School right through there. You guys can go judgment-free. We'll all watch you, though, and look at your outfits. Just kidding. We won't. Promise we won't. <laughs> and thus ensuring that you never leave the room for middle school. Um, hey, um, we are in my family. An exciting time, as I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, as my middle son is exploring college. I've just got back from a trip where he and my wife, Mari, still are looking at schools, and it's had me uh, quite in my feelings, to be honest. It's a, it's a bittersweet time. Exciting uh, to see his life blossoming and um, him finding direction from God and to be supporting him in that, and also sad at the same time. It's also had me thinking back to what seems like yesterday when I was going through that process. Isn't it amazing how something that happened 20, 30 years ago can feel when you experience a version of it like it was just last week. Going to school and uh, all the new experiences associated with that. I studied civil engineering for my undergraduate degree, but I'm not an engineer by harder orientation. It's just that the Army was not giving a lot of scholarships uh, in British literature. So um, we chose a quantitative discipline, uh, and, but to keep myself sane and not lose my, my sense of who I was in the midst of studying subjects like dirt, and concrete, which were semester-long classes, uh, I, would, I would sit, even if I had like 15, 20 minutes, sit on the quad under a tree and read like a great book um, and kind of have a, a little like self-made English minor. Um, during that time, I started to read great books that I hadn't yet read or just stumbled onto in my high school uh, English classes. And I, I went through a year, my sophomore year, where I uh, immersed myself in Russian literature. So Dostoevsky, Tolstoy, Solzhenitsyn, these were my companions, and I just tore through them and loved them. But I had kind of a love-hate relationship with them. Dostoevsky was my favorite um, because he, he, he brought out feeling in me. And having come uh, through life to that point, you know, 18, 19 years of sort of a, a bit emotionally constipated, I found that he unplugged me and, and my emotions were flowing freely. The, the, the Russian literature of my youth was sort of like an emotional laxative um, that, that really helped me. But at the same time, as I, I would just be immersed in this story, I'd be sitting there with tears rolling down my eyes, like reading Anna Karenina or whatever. I, I also realized in reading like Dostoevsky, the guy never met a word or turn of phrase that he didn't like. He couldn't decide which word or phrase to use to describe this scene, so he just used them both. Thus, the books were long, the narrative descriptions were like pages, chapters long, and um, so it was just very wordy. That's just kind of their style. And then my junior year, I, I really dove deep into the early 20th century Americans. So that's Fitzgerald and Faulkner and, and Hemingway was my favorite and probably still is. I love Hemingway. He is the polar opposite of Dostoevsky in the sense not of how he's able to capture human emotion and relationship, but how he used words so economically. He used so few words. You know, his, most scholars believe his contribution to the candidates, the short list of candidates for the great American novel is The Sun Also Rises. 
In that book, you have to infer half of the plot by what he does not say. It's, it's, it's a fascinating and at times maddening way of writing. In the tail end of that time, actually it was probably later on and maybe in my young adult life, I discovered that Hemingway wrote a memoir toward the end of his life about that time in his life in the 20s when he was a part of the expatriate American artist community in Paris. And it's called A Movable Feast, wonderful book. And in that, he described his own tryst with the Russians when he was young. And he said of Dostoevsky, and I was like, okay, I'm not crazy. Someone else thinks this. Hemingway thinks this. So obviously I'm in good company. He said, I remember this clearly. He said, I'm amazed that someone can write so badly, so unbelievably badly, and yet make me feel so deeply. I remember reading that thinking, one, he comes off like quite a snob, and two, he's so right. Uh, he goes on later in, uh, in describing that season of his life in Paris in the 20s when he wrote The Sun Also Rises, probably his greatest work. And uh, he said of that work famously, I would have written less, but I didn't have time. Our subject this morning is our many words. Our many words. We're in Luke chapter 13 as we continue in our series called The Jesus Way, looking at encounters, episodes, days in the life of Jesus that the gospel accounts give us access to, not for Jesus' truth, his teaching, but more for his ways. We're weaving together from what we can extract exegetically from these passages, a tapestry of the ways of Jesus. And so in Luke 13, we have another day in the life. The Word of God teaches one Sabbath day, as Jesus was teaching in a synagogue, he saw a woman who had been crippled by an evil spirit. She had been bent double for 18 years and was unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Dear woman, you are healed of your sickness. Then he touched her and instantly she could stand straight. How she praised God. But the leader in charge of the synagogue was indignant that Jesus had healed her on the Sabbath day. There are six days of the week for working, he said to the crowd. Come on one of those days to be healed, not on the Sabbath. But the Lord replied, you hypocrites. Each of you works on the Sabbath too. Come on, get real. Don't you untie your ox or your donkey from its stall on the Sabbath and lead it out for water? This dear woman, a daughter of Abraham, has been held in bondage by Satan for 18 years. Isn't it right that she be released even on the Sabbath? This shamed his enemies, but all the people rejoiced at the wonderful things he did. We're looking at these passages exegetically to draw out of the text, and that's what that word means, what we can understand, observe, and then infer collectively about the ways of Jesus. And so here are just a couple of observations on this text. One, Jesus' way of differentiation is evident here. It's on display. We talked about that two weeks ago. Jesus wasn't concerned with people-pleasing. He didn't mind disappointing or upsetting others. He was clear, differentiated, and confident in who he was. He didn't 
care to please them, and he didn't mind kicking the hornet's nest. And we see that again here as you got Jesus preaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath day and a crippled woman. That is an explosive combination and one that Jesus didn't miss the opportunity for. The religion crowd, meanwhile, is continuing on brand to miss the forest for the trees. Previously, we looked at an episode similar to this where Jesus was in a town in Galilee and he had Pharisees and teachers of religious law or scribes. These are religious aristocracy, the leaders of the religious cultural hierarchy from the religion capital of Jerusalem who had traveled out to the backwater regions of Galilee to be a sort of watchdog and point out what this guy was doing wrong and report back. Well, now we have a local who's one of their, uh, one of their local constituents, kind of like the sheriff in town, you know, the, the synagogue leader lived there but was of their ilk. And he responds just the same as they did. He says, missing the forest completely for the trees, come on one of the other six days to get healed thinking the day is more important than the power of God on display, and more importantly, the compassion and mercy of God to transform this woman's life. We see Jesus again respond to an increasingly off-putting way of his opponents with grace. His response is inquisitive rather than judgmental or condemning, which is another way of Jesus that we've documented over the last year. He doesn't bury them, though you kind of want him to at this point, and he asks instead simple rhetorical questions. And it tells us this shamed his enemies. His responding not only with that question, but in that way, I think. He's sort of heaping burning coals on their heads, as it were. And then lastly, by way of uh, an observation that brings us kind of to the point of this morning's study, Jesus's explanation of what he's doing and how he's responding is noticeably sparse. His defense is minimal of himself and what he did, and he seems content at the time exactly that would be natural to let him have it, instead to let him off the hook. And as a reader and kind of trying to put myself in the scene, in a way it kind of frustrates me, if I'm honest. Verse 18, it continues, Jesus said, another question, what is the kingdom of God like? How can I illustrate it? And putting myself in the scene as a listener, I'm like, come on, at last. He's about to get real with it. He's going to bring this thing home. He's going to stick it in their eye and tell them what's really up. The big reveal, finally, the method and the madness, yeah? In verse 19, he says, the kingdom of God's like a tiny mustard seed that a man planted in a garden. It grows and becomes a tree and the birds make nests in its branches. He says, what else is it like? It's like the yeast, the yeast a, a woman uses, maybe you used yesterday. In making bread, even though she put out only a little yeast and three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. Amen. Hey, everybody, have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday. What? What? That, that's it?
That's all you got. That's what the kingdom is like. They do this. They so galactically miss the whole thing right in front of them that they've been saying they're searching for. And that's all you're going to say? I, I mean, it's confounding if I'm there. So little. So simplistic. It stands out that Jesus categorically refused to over-explain. And that's, I think, the operative or key observation for this morning in this passage. He left them to puzzle it out. He left the steak rare. Have you ever eaten at, a, at an expensive steakhouse? It seems like um, they always, the more expensive and like bougie the steakhouse, the rarer the chef recommends it. They always say the chef recommends that you order it rare. You know, if it's very expensive, like the chef recommends that you not cook it at all and you eat it raw. I'm like... What's the chef doing back there? Like watching the nuggets? Come on, man, cook the thing. But you're supposed to say, of course, because it's very unbougie to order your steak well done, I've learned. Well, the rationale is you sear it. It sears in the juices, but then it continues to cook, right, over time a- a- after you take it off. The, well, I think Jesus kind of did it like that. He left the steak very rare, like bleeding, with the idea that in the heart of a believer, it's going to continue to cook. He didn't over-explain. At times, frustrating. I, as a teacher of the Bible, many times have found myself wishing the Bible were thinner and more clear instead of so thick and unclear. God seems to have done that on purpose. Proverbs 17 says, a truly wise person uses few words. A person with understanding is even-tempered. Even fools are thought wise when they keep silent. With their mouths shut, they seem intelligent. Jesus undoubtedly was a truly wise person. If anything, Jesus habitually under-explained. He routinely ended his teachings or sayings, they were hardly a teaching from what we have, with let the one who has ears to hear, hear. And if you don't have ears to hear, all right. I, I find myself when I'm reading that wanting to jump into the story and be like, grab them while you got them. Give them ears to hear. Make them hear you. Think about it. Jesus Being in very nature God, the Son of Man, 33 years out of all human history on the planet in human skin, three of those 33 years only is he publicly interacting and teaching. And you would think you would want to maximize those opportunities, get as much in as you can. Being God in the flesh, being his mouthpiece to proclaim his truth, you'd want to say as much as you could. And Jesus instead taught in parables that they would be, he quotes Isaiah and saying, ever hearing and never perceiving, but that if they might look, they would see and listen, they might understand. Is he saying he doesn't want them to understand? Of course not. He's being ironic to say, if you would just apply yourself a little bit, they're not rocket science, right? I mean, Jesus doesn't spoon feed. Thus, he taught them in parables. He doesn't say, here comes the planing for a landing. Come on, open up. And like spoon feed them. But he kind of puts the cookies on the bottom shelf. Like the 
A farmer sows seed, and some of it gets choked out by thorns, and other gets scorched or plucked away by the birds. It's not, I mean, whatever could it mean? It's not that complicated. He made it understandable, but such that we had to look. We had to listen. We had to have ears to hear. And so here Jesus teaches in very simple parables like the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast in this one or another simple way. Jesus' way stands in stark contrast to our way. In fact, in addition to drawing out Jesus' way from observations in these texts and then weaving them together into a sort of tapestry that tells a story of how he did things, you can see Jesus' way even more clearly by putting these interactions against the backdrop, comparing them to the negative, if you will, of the way of American culture. Think about how we talk. We chronically over-explain. It galls us, mostly, to think that people might misunderstand us in any way. You know, we have 17 or 18 euphemisms to say, do you know what I mean? Are you tracking? Are you hearing me? To be honest, for real, no cap. We, we say like full paragraphs of stuff that means nothing except I really, really want you to know that I'm talking right now. I mean, we chronically over-explain and over-emphasize. Have you read something where you just get like buried in the italics and the caps and the exclamation points and the emphases and like the stuff that catches your attention is just the plain text that's unenunciated. We talk to fill space. Man, anything's better than awkwardness, and nothing creates awkwardness like dead air. We can't stand it. If our TV is quiet for like 10 seconds, we're like, what's going on? We talk to dominate with our words, to overpower, to persuade, to convince We talk because we like to hear ourselves. There's something subconscious that says, I sound good when I'm talking. And when I say we, friends, I I mean me. This is in the life of a pastor, at least named me, one of the most self-conscious and vulnerable messages to teach Because you know that I know full well that I might as well have a flashing neon sign over my head right now that says, hypocrite. This is harder for me than just about anything else. And it's probably harder for me than most of you. So I am not standing up here wagging a finger. I am standing up here identifying with you saying, God help us. I am the kid whose parents paid me by the mile on road trips, not to talk. <laughs> like, I mean, I, I, while funny, that is in fact true. It wasn't intended to be a joke. Like, I, wow, that's disturbing that you found that so funny. 
When I was a young pastor, um, our, our, our staff from time to time, we'd give them a book to read on, you know, what it means to be a pastor or on discipleship or spiritual formation or something like that. We'll read it together and discuss it. We, the young staff at the church that I was an associate at, were given a book to read, presumably for pastoral training or something along those lines. It was called, do you remember this book? It was a number one bestseller in the business and, you know, self-help realms in early 2000s. It was called Influence. The Psychology of Persuasion. Anyone remember this book? It was a big deal at its time. Um, Robert Cialdani wrote it. And I was thinking back to how this was introduced as a part of my vocational formation. And I was startled to find a couple of passages like this. From Cialdani's book, or sorry, I think it's Cialdini, isn't it? It's been a little while. Um, He wrote, often we don't realize that our attitude towards something has been influenced by the number of times we have been exposed to it in the past. His premise, of course, is, and and he presents uh, extensive research to substantiate it, this has kind of entered the realm of pop psychology since this time, that it takes the average American between 7 and 12 exposures to a thought idea or product to even register it. You've got to say it and say it and say it and say it and say it again for it even to get on people's mental radar screen. So what's their point? Just saturate it. Say it from birth. Say it clearer. Say it louder. Say it pithier. Say it better. But for goodness sake, don't stop saying it. And he goes on to write, the truly gifted negotiator is one whose initial position is exaggerated enough to allow for a series of concessions that will yield a desirable final offer from the opponent, yet is not so outlandish as to be seen as illegitimate from the start. In other words, talk way more and way farther out there than you initially want them to hear so that as you saturate them, bury them with presentations, you'll kind of meet them somewhere in the reasonable middle. And I thought, this is not him saying what you should do. This is psychology, the social sciences, telling us what works in our culture, how to win at sales, how to win in business, how to win in interpersonal relationships. This is the American way, and Jesus' way could not be more polar opposite. What kind of pastors does that sort of training produce? Matthew chapter 6, in his important work that we call the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door And pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't heap up empty phrases like the Gentiles do. For listen, they think that they will be heard because of their many words. What Jesus says specifically about prayer seems to apply in general to our speech 
and discourse. And Jesus underscores it with the way he modeled it. Jesus calls out the way of our culture, the way that flies in the face of the Jesus way, the way that talks for attention. You know, they love to be seen by others, that talks for affirmation, that talks to fill a hole in our self-worth bucket, that talks to reassure ourselves or gain reassurance from whoever might be listening that we have what it takes, that we're worthwhile, that we're valuable. The way that talks to nurse insecurity by keeping eyes on us, that glad hands in order to get affirmed reciprocally that talks kind of the way our two-year-old's parents grab our faces and say, look at me. The way Jesus exposes that talks in order to grab people and keep them focused on us, to nurse something in us, to meet some legitimate need in an illegitimate way. And he calls out the other way of our culture, talk for attention and then talk to overpower, to dominate, to win to gain, to achieve. They think they will be heard for their many words. If we say it, say it, say it, say it, and say it again, then maybe at some point they'll hear it. If we do it the ways that we're conditioned to do it, coached to do it, the ways that it's modeled for us, we'll earn the business, get the promotion, win the prize. Proverbs 10 says, When words are many, sin is not absent. That's hard to hear, isn't it? As a people who instinctively abhor dead air time. But this was Jesus' way. Jesus stands like a foil of opposition to the way of the world that says, say more, say it pithier, say it more forcefully. Dazzle them with rhetoric. Bury them with words. You know, you see the the Super Bowl of the American way of discourse in our political debates. And they're debates in quote, because anybody who studied or participated in the, the art, like arts and sciences, art of debate, speech and debate in high school or in college, knows that what our politicians do makes a mockery of that discipline. But you see the, the pinnacle of the way of our culture on display every four years, where it's not even responding to one another. It's dominating. It's louder. It's it's saying it more clever, saying it pithier, maybe saying it more shock jock is in right now than the other guy. We don't even respond, our politicians, to one another's ideas. We merely wait for them to take a breath and then jump in with our talking points, even if they're not related to what was being said. And nowadays, 
it seems we don't even have to wait for them to take a breath. We just flat talk right on top of them until both talk so long that somebody blinks first and stops. The word I heard from you all, and this isn't about your politic, this is about our American way, achieving a sort of sad pinnacle. The word I heard from more of my fellow Americans last election cycle than any other surrounding our debates was embarrassing. That was embarrassing. It was like cringy to watch. That's the way in which we are steeped from birth. But it wasn't Jesus' way. Jesus' way stands in stark contrast to the way of the world, in stark contrast to the way that says, say more and say it more forcefully and bury them with your words. Jesus' way seems to have been to say less, to say it softer, and to honor people with your words. How did he honor them with his words? Well, foremost, he left room for them. He left room for them to respond. He left room for them to form their conclusions. He left the stake rare and acknowledged the role of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said in his final week to his disciples, it's more valuable to you that the Holy Spirit would come and live full-time in you than even having me here. Because the Holy Spirit, he will lead you into all truth. Romans 12, don't conform any longer to this to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. See, the Holy Spirit leads us into all truth. The Holy Spirit renews our mind, and that's like the headwaters. That's the breaker that triggers a transformation of our whole being, body, heart, and spirit. Jesus knew this process. He knew that to say less was to allow the Holy Spirit, God in us, to be more. It was to fuel faith, to ennoble and empower authentic believers. Now, an intellectually honest and astute student of the Bible, as you all are, would recognize one discrepancy here that we need to address briefly, and that is understanding this passage to, to teach or rather to demonstrate a way which is economy of language, few words, belies the fact that elsewhere Jesus seems to have used many words, like three chapters worth of them in the Sermon on the Mount, four or five chapters worth of them in the Olivet Discourse at the end of Matthew. So what do we do with that? Are you just picking a passage that makes your point? Well, I would suggest that Jesus being a preacher... Jesus, being the proclaimer, the mouthpiece of God, came to earth for the purpose of teaching as well as modeling. And the fact that preachers are going to preach, just like haters are going to hate, 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 preachers, listen, are going to preach, 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 preach. Ask my family. It's not as though you get the, the muse on cue when you step up in the pulpit and then afterward give it back to God and become soft-spoken. I remember my grandmother when I was a kid saying, 
this boy's either going to be a lawyer or a preacher because he sure can talk. And so what I can tell you by a little bit of subject matter expertise is that you don't stop having the impulse or inclination or ability to talk when you stop being in a public speech milieu. The fact that Jesus had that gift and that role and assignment and spoke so little in all the other times, I would suggest to you, doesn't undermine but strengthens the point. It's like the exception that proves the rule. The fact that he was so restrained for living inside someone who does some version of this job, I think makes the point even more compellingly. Whether or not you think that's true, what he said, we have to reckon with. So this brings me to my mea culpa, my moment of true confession. I have buried with words. Like, if any of you has buried with words, I have probably done it more. This is the other edge of the sword of having the ability to talk fluently is that I can have a hell of a tongue. I can be a... And I'm not like self-deprecating. I mean, the hardest parts of being married to me, I think I can confidently say on Mari's behalf over the years, have been this impulse to to dominate with my words, to bury with more carefully crafted rhetoric, more precisely thought out reasoning. And to the point that it just all runs off the top and her heart is completely closed and I'm damaging the relationship. The repair work, the growth, and at times the troubles that we've had in marriage have been tangentially or more often primarily linked to that brokenness in me. This has been one of the short list of most deep needs in my life for Jesus' redemption. And it's ongoing. I mean, it began early and I've been learning and more than anything, unlearning the ways of the world and the ways of my sinful nature all this time. And I'm still in the lab. And so I I tell you that because this is an easy one to stand up and and wag a finger. You know, we're going to read the James, the tongue itself is set on fire by hell passage to close this thing. And I just, I want to preface that by saying, it's easy to stand up and go, tame your tongue, it's set on fire by hell, as if mine isn't. And so this is all of us, not in the lab. This is all of us in the apprentice room with Jesus, looking together to our Savior saying, oh, would you make us new? And I'm the first among us. James 3 addresses me maybe addresses you. We can make a large horse go wherever we want by means of a small bit in its mouth. This is James, the brother of the Lord Jesus, the one who said outlandish things like, Jesus, come on to Jerusalem where people can see all your great powers and you can become famous. He learned Jesus' way by walking with him. A small rudder makes a huge ship turn wherever the pilot chooses to go even though the winds are strong. In the same way, the tongue is a small thing that makes grand speeches. But a tiny spark can set a great forest on fire, and among all the parts of the body, the tongue 
is a flame of fire, a whole world of wickedness corrupting your entire body. It can set your whole life on fire. For it is itself set on fire by hell. People can tame all kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and fish, but no one can tame the tongue. No one but Jesus, of course. Jesus showed us a tamed tongue, and he showed us that first it looks like one who is secure in the Father's lung, in the Father's, not his lungs, that's weird, in the Father's love. (laughs) Being secure in the Father's lungs, (laughs) very different. A tamed tongue is secure in the Father's love. Romans 8 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God hears us, if He understands our hearts, if He validates our lives, no human can invalidate them. When we are secure in the Father's love and in who He says we are and why He says we're here, then half of our words don't need to exist. The half or so that are aimed overtly or tacitly, at gaining validation, at nursing our insecurity. A tame tongue, Jesus showed us, is surrendered to the Holy Spirit's leadership in our lives. Galatians 5 says, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't do what your sinful nature desires. Surrendered to God's lordship through the leading of the Holy Spirit, we can be thoughtful in the choice of our words. <coughs> Pardon me. Jesus modeled a thoughtfulness. He was careful. He was intentional in the way he chose to live. And I think he was careful with the words he chose to use. Thinking before we speak is a lost art. But not for Jesus. Proverbs 17 in the more traditional translations reads, A man of knowledge uses words with restraint. My prayer just about every morning, and certainly every Sunday morning, when toward the end of worship for a moment or two, I'll often get down on my knees and pray this prayer from Psalm 141. God, place a guard over my lips, over the doorway of my mouth. Lord, let me only speak words that are useful and pleasing to you, that build up, challenge, and encourage your saints, and nothing else. A couple of questions for reflection. In the spirit of Jesus, he asked more questions than he gave answers by a long shot. Maybe questions to ponder at the end of the day as we're getting ready for bed. Think back through the day and the things you said or the discourses you gave. If it is true of you, I challenge you to ask yourself, why do I talk so much? Not rhetorically, like, why do I talk so much? But why actually? What am I aiming to accomplish? Am I aiming to persuade? Am I trying to bulldoze or bury people with 7 to 12 familiarities with my ideas so that I can dominate or control or convince or win them? Am I talking so much to gain attention that'll nurture some inner damage, that'll fill a a bucket with a hole in it that your approval can, at the end of the day, never fill? Am I trying to keep eliciting that? 
like going back to a drug that I need ever more to get less and less of a high? Why do I talk so much? And the second question, did my words honor? Did they honor God? Did they honor others? Jesus' words honored even his opponents. This is one of these that takes about 30 minutes to say and a lifetime to live into. God, help us and give us grace. Would you stand with me? Let's just pray this together. I'm going to pray it for me. And if you agree, just, I'll tell you what. Now, sometimes we lay hands on one another if one, someone's sick or someone's struggling. Would you just lay hands on yourself? Just place a hand over your heart. Just be a person, a man or a woman of faith and pray this, if you will, with me into your heart. Father in heaven, I need your help to be more like Jesus in this way. Oh, Holy Spirit, I want to make room for you to be more, to be bigger, for your leadership in my life. God, my Father, I, I want to look to you for validation, for affirmation, to affirm and fuel my identity. Heal my insecurity. God, I want to be like Jesus who had more rightfully to say than any human in history and yet was so careful with his words and in the balance said so little. I look at Jesus and think less was indeed more. I want to be like that. I want to live the gospel, your healing. I want to believe for your making all things new, not just things out there, things in here. Would you make me new? And God, as we follow Jesus, our captain, for his ways, as we apprentice with our rabbi, our master, help us because we feel like we're walking into a hurricane force wind against such a strong current makes sense, Jesus, that you said narrow is the way that leads to salvation. Would you go with us and go before us? Keep showing us the way. Would you strengthen my brothers and sisters? Would you strengthen me to live your way this week? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Man, love you all so much. Thanks for following Jesus. Thanks for being the real thing. Mari and I are so grateful to be raising our own family and living in the community of such a wonderful, rich, diverse, eclectic, real family of believers. We love you guys so much. So excited for all the good things that are going on around here. Don't forget the Thanksgiving outreach, kind of the high point of the year for our our city engagement. And then today, right now, right after service, if you're new around here or have been kind of on the outside peeking in or sitting, you know, in the cheap seats looking over the balcony, we'd love for you to explore becoming part of the family. There's room here for you. We need you in this family and what God has put in you. Our staff love the opportunity every month to meet you, hear your story, and help you get connected, share where we're going, what we value. And hey, you got to eat lunch anyway. You might as well join us for an hour or so. It's right there in the garage. Later this afternoon, new leaders orientation. If you're like, yeah, you know what? I don't know, but that could be me. 
If, I mean, Deanna's testimony was so compelling. Like, she had never led before, but just said, hey, I'm willing. And look how Jesus is using her and not only blessing her, but so many others. Um, man, maybe he wants to work through you. We'd love to have you at that orientation. Have an amazing week. Love you all so much. Enjoy the beautiful fall weather, and we'll see you next Sunday. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com. Thank you.